Welcome to the Winback Marketing Podcast. There's gold buried in your lost customers. And in this podcast, you'll learn how sales and marketing leaders mine that gold using Winback Marketing. This week, my guest is behavioral marketing expert Nancy Harhut. In this episode, Nancy explains why Winback works from a behavioral science perspective. She also shares two great Winback stories, one of which generated $68 million. You'll find that one fascinating. Welcome, Nancy. So good to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Dan. Great to be here. So before we get started on Winback, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your business? Sure, sure. So about uh, five and a half years ago, I co-founded HBT Marketing. And HBT stands for Human Behavior Triggers. And what we do is we combine marketing best practices with what behavioral scientists have found about how people make decisions. And we use that in order to increase the likelihood that people will do what our clients want them to. And what people uh, do is uh, they very often rely on decision-making shortcuts. And behavioral scientists have studied this. They've studied how people uh, make decisions, why they do what they do. And, and they found that very often people aren't really making conscious, well-thought-out, well-considered decisions. They're using decision defaults. And so as a marketer, if you can get in front of that, if you realize what's likely to prompt an automatic, hardwired behavior, you're much more likely to get the behaviors you're looking for. So that's what we focus on uh, on doing. That's what we do for our clients. And then. Um, just recently, I actually published a book. Kogan Page, my publisher based in London, uh, reached out to me and said, hey, that's a really interesting thing that you have going. Would you be uh, at all interested in send, you know, sending us a book proposal? And that resulted in using behavioral science and marketing, which is my new book. It's, it's available at Kogan Page and Amazon and, and any place fine books are sold. And it really is a hands-on hands book, a handbook. It just shows you very practical, actionable, tactical ways to use behavioral science in your marketing strategies and in, and your executions in order to get people to do what you want them to do. I love your book. Um, Carl Adamson just raved about it. And I'm really excited to hear that win back story that you've got in your book, that nationwide story. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was interesting. It was a, a piece of business I was working on, uh, Nationwide Financial. And they came to the agency where where I was at the time and said, we are, we're trying to reactivate financial planners, financial advisors who used to work with us, but who've stopped. And I guess if you're a financial advisor, you can represent a few different financial firms and, and sell, you know, a variety of funds. And these people used to sell nationwide, but then they stopped and nationwide was trying to reactivate them. And they, you know, made all kinds of attempts, phone and email, whatnot. And they, they couldn't quite reactivate these advisors. So they said, we, we want to reactivate them. And the key was they had been gone a year or more. So 12 or more months ago. So, you know, when you think about that, you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of a, you know, a, a serious considered decision on their part. You know, it's not like that they'd been gone a, a month or something. Maybe you say, oh, they had a downturn in their business or they'd been on vacation or something, you know, things will tick up, you know, uh, eventually. But this was, you know, a year or more ago. And you can assume that they either didn't want to sell the funds or found someone else that, you know, whose funds they like better, you know. So we said, all right, so we decided what we're going to do is we're going to use the reciprocity principle. And the reciprocity principle is basically give to get. You know, when when you do something for someone, they feel uh, that they want to answer uh, the favor, return the favor, answer in kind, you know, kind of wipe the slate clean. And so what we decided to do is we sent these financial advisors an email. And the email came from the wholesaler and it said, hey, watch your snail mail because there's a gift that I picked out especially for you and it's going to be arriving in the next day or two. And then a day or two later, this white box arrives in the mail and inside the box is a framed 
New Yorker cartoon. And it's a cute little cartoon that was very appropriate for the audience. It was this little kid uh, going around the neighborhood trying to sell, you know, life insurance or financial funds or something. And it was it was it was amusing. It, you know, it was cute if you're in the business. And the cool thing, Dan, was the caption had the recipient's name in it. So yours would have your name in it. Mine would have my name in it. So here you've got this New Yorker cartoon with your name in the caption. It's framed. Cool gift, right? And you know it's going to end up on the wall of your office. And, you know, it's going to be sitting there just, you know, reminding you about about Nationwide. And accompanying it was a letter from the wholesaler that said, hey, we'd love to catch up, find out what you're up to, you know, give you the update on what we've been up to over the last few months, you know. Uh, you know, please give us a call. If I don't hear from you, I'll be, you know, calling you. And, uh, you know, you can imagine what would happen, right? If if the wholesaler called, how can you not take the call, right? You're like looking at the at the cartoon. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then, you know, you're talking to clients and, you know, maybe they look at the cartoon. And next thing you know, uh, you know, things start to change. And not only did Nationwide reactivate a, a large number of these financial advisors, people that they hadn't been doing business with in over a year, they actually generated 68 68- you cut out, was it $68 million? Yes, it was $68 million as reported by the client, $68 million in incremental revenue based on this promotion alone. And the, you know, this is their tracking, not the agencies. They were the ones who reported it back. Wow, that's crazy. Isn't it though? Yeah, yeah. So it was a fantastic example of, of using the reciprocity give to get, the reciprocity principle, I should say, give to get um, in order to win back people. And, you know, somebody might say, gee, why would you do that? Why would you send a gift to someone who stopped doing business with you? Why would you send it to the people who are doing what you want them to do, who are doing business with you? And you certainly can't, you know, you can't argue with that. It's nice to reward good behavior. But the idea of sending a gift to reactivate people who had, you know, fallen by the wayside and needed to be won back turned out to be a really smart one. It was it was really very profitable for them. Was that your idea to do the uh, cartoons? So no, actually, um, it was it was uh, my team, and I want to say it was a writer named Michelle Martineau, and the art director I think was Colin Hewitt. I'm pretty sure I have that right, but uh, it was definitely somebody on my team. I can't take credit for it. I wish that I could. Um, uh, you know, a number of years ago, uh, working at another agency, we had used a, a personalized New Yorker cartoon for uh, for another client, and it worked very well. So when they came to me with the idea, it was like, oh my god, this is great! You know, I I have a lot of heart for this. I think it's going to work. Uh, although, although I don't even think I realized it was going to work as well as it did. So uh, so kudos to them for uh, coming up with it and the whole idea of framing it and uh, you know putting it in this beautiful box with a ribbon around it. It, it was just a first class treatment. Really broke <laughs> through the clutter. Wow, that's fantastic. There's a study in the Harvard Business Review. And a number of other studies have shown that it's easier to win back an old customer than it is to win a new customer. And two of those studies also show that when an old customer comes back, they actually spend more the second time around. All of this data is out there. So you'd think that win back on some level would be a no-brainer. You know, but most companies virtually ignore their old customers and they just go for new customers. Can behavioral science give us some insights into why we focus on acquiring new customers and virtually ignore our old ones? So um, I think from a behavioral science perspective, it may have to do with um, kind of the, the fact that we're, we're focused on the present, right? It's all about, you know, what's in front of us right now. And um, so the idea of going and getting new customers is just more salient. You know, part of it, I think, is also the way companies are, are structured and, and how they prioritize things. And there's always this push, you know, uh, we need to, you know, get new business. We need to grow our customer base. That's what's in front of them. And it's like, I have to sell more product. I have to go find new customers, you know, or maybe I have a new customer acquisition goal. Um, or maybe there's a new market penetration goal that we have. And so because that's the more salient thing, the thing that people are more, uh, you know, more aware of, it's, it's you know, something that's just kind of in front of them. They're more focused on it. And, uh, and I think, you know, to their detriment, they forget about, 
you know, win back, they forget about retention, and they just focus on acquisition, acquisition, acquisition. And, um, you know, I, I do think that it, it probably hurts them because I agree with the studies that you've cited. But I think from a behavioral science perspective, we are, you know, we're focused on what's right in front of us, what's more salient, the thing that we're, you know, that's noticeable and, and important. And for many companies, the thing that's noticeable and important is the idea of growing that customer base. Another thing about Winback is that when people return, they actually tend to become more loyal. Why do you think Winback customers are more loyal than new customers? So I, I think from a behavioral science perspective, it may have something to do with uh, something called the, the uh, commitment and consistency principle. And the way this works is, you know, once we make a decision or take a stand, we uh, have a tendency to remain consistent with it when future opportunities arise. And we don't really give the, the matter a lot of thought. And I think what happens is if you make the decision to come back, you must, you know, you must think to yourself, well, this company must be good because I came back, right? So I'm going to be consistent with my behavior. I made the decision to come back. And if I made that decision, I must have done it for a good reason. You know, I must have, uh, you know, I must have made the right decision. And as a result, now I'm going to use this company even more. I'm going to really rely on them. You know, I left, I came back. So now I'm going to be consistent with that behavior. It's just this, you know, this idea that if, if I made the decision, I must have done it for a reason. Uh, it, the same thing works, honestly, with direct mail. When you, if you get someone to open the envelope, you're halfway there because it's like, well, if I opened it, I must have done it because it's, it's worthy of my time. So now I'm going to read what's inside. So getting, that, uh, getting someone to make that decision then makes them think, all right, I made the right decision. Now I'm going to act accordingly. Can you share another winback story? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is one of my, my favorite ones. This goes back a little ways, uh, but I was asked to write a letter for. AT&T. And this was uh, at a point where, um, you know, there was a lot of competition from other long distance carriers from Sprint and MCI. And it was not long after the, uh, the initial AT&T monopoly breakup. So a lot of people left and Sprint was less expensive and MCI was less expensive. And, uh, you know, they used to talk about their, their pin drop for clarity. And there was just a lot of, of new competition. And, you know, like like anything, uh, when people have a chance to try something new, a lot of times they do. Right? You know, it's like, all right, I've had this one company for the longest time. There's some shiny new object out here. I'm, I'm going to give it a try. And so it was not an easy thing to try to win people back. And also at that particular point in, in history, uh, AT&T's rates had to remain artificially high. It was right after the breakup. And for, for a certain period of time, that was kind of what the what the agreement was. So they were definitely being undercut. We're like, all right, how are we going to get people back? And this was a B2B play. And what we ended up doing is putting this letter together that I wrote, getting it off in the mail. And it, it, it started by saying, um, the biggest frustrations in business is losing, in spite of your best efforts, a good and valued customer. But that's the way business is. The only thing you can really do is launch an all-out effort to get those customers back. If they're important enough, they're worth it. That's how we feel about you. So we really kind of, you know, we, we start out with something that people would in business would agree with. It's like, yeah, it's crummy when you lose a customer. Well, what do you do? Well, you know, you try to get them back. And if they're, you know, if they're important enough, you're, you know, they're, they're, you're really going to work hard. And then, you know, we went on to flatter them and said, you're someone who's important enough. And then from there, we started to do a few things. We, you know, we asked if, you know, they were seeing that really big difference that they were promised? Are they seeing, you know, substantial savings over what they had been paying? Are they seeing substantial, um, 
differences in, in the service and in the, the quality, because we knew from market research that they probably weren't. And so if you could get people to, to kind of come to their conclusion, come to their own conclusion that actually, no, you know, those guys, you know, set my expectations up here, but they're delivering at a much lower level. Now it became the, you know, the customer and AT&T against the other guys, you know, like we were, you know, we were on the same side now and those other guys, you know, they, they took advantage of you. They promised you things that they didn't deliver, you know? Um, and then, you know, we also talked about all the stuff that they would regain if they returned and, you know, things that are familiar to us uh, are important to us. So, you know, we talked about all the, the things that they had when they were previously customers. And even if they hadn't used all of them, you start to feel a sense of loss. Like those, those things used to be mine, but they're no longer mine. And, and I want those back. And, um, and then of course we mentioned that a lot of people like them had left and had decided to return that the smarter thing was to return to AT&T. And when you have something like that, the idea of social proof, people like me are doing this, it starts to give you not only permission to come back, but also makes you feel that you might be missing out if you don't return. And uh, and then we wrapped it up by saying, you know, it's not enough for AT&T to be the right choice, which was the tagline at the time. We said, it's not enough for AT&T to be the right choice. We want to be your choice. So we made it very personalized, we, you know, very focused on the individual recipients so that they felt that they did matter. And what I found out, I mean, I, I wrote the the letter and went on to write all kinds of other things. Years later, I found out that it was a longstanding control and they actually framed it and gave it to me. I had since left the agency and they tracked me down and gave me a framed copy of it. So absolutely one of my favorite win back stories. Well, first of all, that's incredibly impressive that your, uh, your direct mail piece became a control. That must have been a beautifully crafted letter. At the end of the letter, you mentioned lots of people returning. So did you tell them why they were coming back? Did you mention names? Did you have testimonials? Like what level of social proof did you uh, present? We did not mention names or use testimonials. I, I'm not sure we even had them at our disposal at that point. Although mm -hmm. had we, that would have been really good. You know, a, a buck slip or a brochure, you know, or even in the body of the letter, just having some quotes from people. And, and the, the thing about those quotes would be not only would they be good social proof, but ideally they would say something like, I left because I thought I was going to get a better deal. And it turns out I didn't, because if you can kind of start where people are, you know, it's like, oh, all right, that's, you know, that's, that's what I was thinking too, that I was going to get this better deal, but it's not my imagination. I'm not getting a better deal, nor are these other people, you know? So if we'd had them, we would have used them. But, um, I think what we did is, you know, we, we posed the questions and said, are you experiencing, you know, these things? Are you getting what you thought you would? Um, if you're like many people, the answer is no. So it was a, it was a nod to social proof, but not in a very, um, specific way, not with an individual name or an individual number attached, but just a, you know, many people, people like you have, have come to that same conclusion. There are two schools of thought, uh, around when we should approach a customer who's left. You know, one is, um, as soon as the customer leaves, you should reach out you know, uh, ask where you fell short and apologize. And the other school of thought is wait three or four months, you know, let them cool down and then reach out. So from a, from a behavioral uh, science perspective, is one better than the other? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, and I could get behind both of them. So I would say it, it may depend on why someone decided to leave. So did they leave because they were you know, leaving you running away from something that they didn't like in you, or did they leave because they were running towards something that, that they liked in the other company? Because if, if it was the former, if they were kind of running away from something they didn't like from you, if you intervene quickly enough and solve that problem, you might be able to keep them. Whereas if, if you wait for three, four months, you know, they're gone already. You, you missed your opportunity to, to, to fix it. On the other hand, if they're so enamored of what the other guy is saying, 
that, you know, that's all they can think about. And, you know, in, in their mind, that is going to be so incredible. You might be better off to just let them go and try it and, and see for themselves that maybe it's not as good, you know. Um, but, you know, if, if they're totally running towards something and so in love with it, it might be harder to at that particular moment in time say, no, 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 you used to stay here because they've experienced you and they've built up in their mind what the other company is going to be like. So they might need to go and see, eh, maybe it doesn't really quite match the expectations. So I think it might really come down to, you know, a testable proposition or to being able to know whether they're leave, you know, they're leaving you because of something that something bad that happened or if they're leaving you because they think there's something better elsewhere. Yeah, it's really hard to defeat the allure of new. That's so compelling. In your book, you talk about specific words that make a big impact. Are there words that we can use that would be especially powerful in our win-back efforts? I think there are, actually. Um, one of them is the word because. And there's a researcher that came out of Harvard. Her name is Ellen Langer. And she identified the word because as an automatic compliance trigger. And what she found is when we see or hear that word, we just start to agree. We start to nod yes before we've even fully processed what comes next. We just assume whatever is going to come after that word because is a good legitimate reason. And, and as a result, when we hear the word because, we're already in this agreeable mindset. And, and she proved this by actually running an experiment. There were a bunch of people lined up to use a photocopier. She sent someone to head the line, instructed that person to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you? And 60% of the time, 60, 60% of the time, they were allowed to cut. So let's call that our baseline. But then she repeated the experiment a second time and she instructed the person to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you? Because I'm in a hurry and I have some copies to make. So the 60% number shoots up to 94%. And we might think it's because they said they were in a hurry. But she repeats the experiment a third and final time, instructs the person to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you because I have some copies to make. The 94% number drops to only 93%, statistically insignificant. Now, if you're, you know, if you're really listening to me, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, Nessie. Everybody standing in that line was standing in that line because they had some copies to make, right? Langer identified the word because is an automatic compliance trigger. We see or hear it, we, you know, we just start to agree. So using the word because can be very, very powerful. And if we're, if we're trying to convince someone to do something, you know, give us another try, come back, uh, whatever it is, you know, providing that reason why will make it more likely they're going to do what we're asking them to do. Another powerful word is the word you. And in marketing, whether it's uh, win back or retention or acquisition, a lot of times in marketing, we forget that. And what we do is we focus on ourselves too much, our company, our product, our service. And it comes from a good place that our products and our services and our companies are really good. And so we want to talk about them. We want to tell people about them. But people are more interested in themselves than anyone else. So I would say use that word you. It's not about we want you to come back or we've made these changes or we have this thing you'll be interested in. It's, it's all about you and what you're going to get. And then the third and final word is the word imagine. And I like to recommend using the word imagine because it has a, a, a very powerful effect on people. For one, it lowers their resistance. And if you're trying to win somebody back, it would be helpful if you could lower their resistance. But when you ask someone to imagine they right away take a breath. It's like, okay, we're not anchored in reality right now. We're dealing with the imagination. So we relax a little bit. And then we ask them to imagine, you know, a, a particular scenario. And what they do is they they fill in the specifics for them. You know, if I ask you to imagine a, you know, a perfect vacation, your perfect vacation may be very different than my version of a perfect vacation. But what I ask you to imagine, you fill it in with the details that are specific to you. And then you start to envision yourself doing it. And that's what's so key, because once you can see yourself doing something, that paves the way for you to actually do it. If you said to me, you know, Nancy, would you ever jump out of an airplane? 
I'd say, ah, damn, I could never see myself doing that. And and that's really important because if you can't see yourself doing something, you're not going to physically follow through and do it. So by asking someone to imagine doing something, it paves the way to get them to actually do it. So I would say that three really good, powerful words are because you and imagine. There are so many gems in your book and we've covered a number of them already, but is there something big we haven't talked about yet or something that your readers say they found particularly insightful? You know what? In preparation for this particular uh, interview, I was giving that some thought and I was like, oh, there are two things that I think your listeners might really be interested in. One of them is the idea of framing. And that is, you know, how we describe something, the words that we choose to use to talk about our product or our service or our value proposition, you know, how we frame something actually makes a difference in terms of how someone understands it and how they um, think about it and, and react to it. So uh, I came across a study. It was from Adobe. And it was about people calling up to cancel their subscription. And what they used to do is they would say, well, you know, gee, Dan, why, why are you calling to cancel? Right? It's kind of a common question when people call to cancel. You know, why are you calling to cancel? But what they did is they reframed the question. And instead they said, gee, Dan, why did you sign up to begin with? And it got people to focus on their initial decision to sign up and, and why they made that decision and all the good things that they wanted. And the study showed that they got an 8.8% increase in retention by reframing the question. When people called to say, I want to cancel, they just reframed the question from why do you want to cancel to why did you sign up to begin with? 8.8% increase. And then the other um, behavioral science principle that I think is applicable is something called availability bias. And it's this idea that um, the things that we can readily call to mind are, we believe, more likely to happen. And so there's a behavioral scientist named Dan Ariely, and, you know, he, he likes to say, you know, if you ask people, uh, you know, uh, are you in love with your spouse? And, oh, yeah, of course, I'm in love with my spouse. And then if you say, you know, well, give me three reasons why you're in love with your spouse. You know, you rattle off these three reasons and, and you come away feeling like you're absolutely even more in love. If you say to them, are you in love with your spouse? They say, yes. And you say, great, give me 10 reasons why. Like, okay. And you start off pretty strong. You get through those first three and, and you you slow down a little bit at four or five, and, and then you really have a hard time trying to get to 10. And as a result, you think to yourself, my gosh, I can't think of 10 reasons why. I guess I'm not that in love. You know, I, I guess I'm not as in love as I thought I was. And uh, so what he did is uh, he uses that. He, he's a well-known behavioral uh, economist, but he also teaches at Duke. And at Duke, they always have these uh, end of the semester professor evaluations. And right before he has the kids do the evaluation, he says, give me 15 reasons or 15 ways that I can improve my class. And obviously, you know, they, you know, they come up with, oh, don't give as many tests or, you know, but, but trying to come up with 15, they like run out of them. And he said, as a result, his um, evaluations have gone up because they're, well, if I can't think of 15 ways to improve it, I guess it must be pretty good. So from a win back perspective, you know, I, I would say it's like, all right, you're going to leave, you know, give me 10 reasons why, you know, leaving is a good idea. And, you know, maybe you have that first one or two that are, you know, like top of mind, but coming up with that 10th one or that 15th one might be a little tricky. And, and that might provide the opening for someone to say, look, you know, maybe you should give us another try. So I think if, you know, if you're trying to win somebody back, you know, you might say, well, you know, give me 10 reasons why you think it's a smart idea to leave. And, you know, maybe they come up with the first one or two because those are really top of mind. But, you know, they can't, you know, have a hard, they have a hard time getting to the 10th. And then you say, you know what? It gives you the opportunity or it gives you the opening to say, hey, look, you know, maybe we can fix this. Maybe we can make it right. Maybe you shouldn't be leaving right yet. You know, stay a little bit longer. You know, if I can't quickly rattle off the 10 reasons why I should leave, I might be more open to you suggesting I should stay. Before we go, is there anything else you'd like to leave us with? 
you know what? I think uh, the, the thing that I'd like to leave uh, your listeners with is just the idea that uh, a little well-placed behavioral science injected into your marketing communications can really make a big difference. And you don't have to change your MarTech stack. You don't have to spend a lot of money to do this. It's just thinking about human behavior, thinking about the automatic decisions people make, thinking about the things that trigger those automatic decisions can really go a long way to increasing the response that you get to your campaigns. And of course, if you're curious to find out more, I have uh, 17 chapters of actionable, practical, tactical tips in my book, Using Behavioral Science and Marketing. So it's a good place to start. Thanks so much, Nancy. Greatly appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.